Hello once again, and thanks for joining us on Pastor Life Podcast from Pinnacle Leadership Associates. I'm Rhonda Blevins, Pinnacle Associate and Pastor of Chapel by the Sea in Clearwater Beach, Florida. And I'm David Brown, Pinnacle Associate and Pastor of the Welcome Table in Rock Hill, South Carolina. Today, we continue our courageous conversations with the goal of providing pastors and clergy some tools, if you will, in their pastoral tool belts for thinking about how we might talk about some of these more pressing issues in our culture and and how to do that in the church setting. Yeah, today's episode is around the difficult topic of immigration. How as pastors do we have meaningful conversation with our people about immigration, about migrants, refugees? What is the faithful response, the Christian response, if you will, and how might our response as people of faith add to the discourse and possibly even influence policymakers? Yeah, and we have a special guest today to help us dive deeper on this topic. Reverend Dr. Blake Hart is with us on the pod today. Blake is the director and really the founder of Carolina Immigrant Alliance. Blake has served in the mission field as a, a field personnel with CBF, Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. Um, he's also been the mission coordinator for the state of South Carolina, uh, the CBF group there. And uh, he's an active part of the South Carolina Christian Action Council. So Blake has a long history of thinking about cross-cultural uh, engagement uh, within the Christian faith. And he'll be a great voice for us to learn from on this topic. No, it sounds exciting. I really look forward to hearing your interview with Blake. Well, let's get to it. So, David, as we get into the courageous conversation about immigration and your interview with Blake Hart, it might be good to mention that you recorded the interview before the military withdrawal from Afghanistan and the chaos that ensued and, of course, the renewed discourse about refugees and immigration Uh, the division within the populace about whether we should welcome Afghani refugees to our shores. It's kind of all back in in front and center in the news cycle now. Absolutely. And, you know, the truth is that immigration doesn't ever seem to fall off or out of that Mm -hmm. news cycle for very long at a time. And I think that's part of what makes this a difficult conversation, part of why it does take courage to engage with these ideas, um, these situations. There's so many different layers and so many particularities, uh, particular contexts that are involved. I I mean, even just the idea of of sort of thinking about immigration and thinking about refugees, you know, migrants Mm -hmm. who who, who cross over and who are um, looking for possibilities, you know, sort of that thing that the United States was built on. And then on the other hand, true refugees who, who really are vetted in many ways and who are coming here because of, of crises in their homelands. And right. um, so, you know, you're talking about different categories when you're thinking about how and why people come to the United States. And uh, obviously, I think that plays into the, the general feelings or opinions that people have. And as we know, with all of these courageous conversations, people who are sitting, you know, in the same pew on a Sunday morning uh, may think very differently, uh, have different opinions or different ideas about policy. And so I'm interested to see how we have a constructive conversation. And you're right that the situation in Afghanistan 
it, it really does bring some of those questions right back to the forefront. Yeah, another way that it, uh, immigration is in the news are is that certain politicians are blaming immigrants, especially on our southern border, for the spread of COVID. <laughs> Here right. I am in Florida, the epicenter of the pandemic right now, and right. Uh, and you know we're blaming it on you know immigrants from Mexico and South America, and it seems that immigrants are um, a real scapegoat w- with some and. And is that a faithful response or, you know, what do we do with that? And how do we handle that when we hear people in our pews suggesting that that immigrants on the southern border are to blame (laughs) for the pandemic? So anyway, tough, tough topic. I, I really look forward to learning from Blake and hearing your interview with him. Well, and I think there are a lot of biblical resources and theological resources that we can bring to bear on this conversation. And, you know, just thinking through some of the passages in Scripture passages throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament that really talk about faithful response to the alien and the stranger, you know, to kind of use that King James-ish language. Um, What does it mean that our forebearers were aliens and strangers in the land? And how does that affect the way that we, you know, now approach or the the posture that we take toward toward people who are making their way uh, here now? And, and it's also interesting, and you'll hear this in the interview with Blake, that, that he actually draws some wisdom from a, 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 a very different piece of scripture. And I'll just leave that hanging oh. so that people will be really interested in listening out for that as we go. All but right, a little teaser. Yeah, that's right. So um, <laughs> let's jump right in and, and hear a little more from Reverend Blake Hart. Well, our guest for this episode of the podcast is Blake Hart. He is the director of the Carolina Immigrant Alliance. His experience, his thoughtfulness, um, his work and calling will really, I think, bring some, some good energy and some insight into this courageous conversation around immigration. So, Blake, welcome. And uh, if you'll just take a minute to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about Carolina Immigrant Alliance. Yeah, so uh, thanks for having me here. Uh, so my name is Blake Hart. I I grew up in Western North Carolina. I often say I came uh, I went a long way to end up where I am today. You know, grew up in Western North Carolina, uh, lived in Ecuador and Chile, and then round up in Rock Hill. <laughs> so a long, long roundabout way to get here. Uh, but so the Carolina Immigrant Alliance, it's a new nonprofit that we started about three or four years ago. The mission of the alliance is to... Uh, to be partners in the work, allies in the work of creating diverse communities. And so we do that through uh, immigration legal aid. We do it through education initiatives, both sort of community-based, educating about immigration, and then also initiatives aimed at educating, um, offering educational services to immigrants as well. And then we do it through relationship building, um, realizing that you know, we'll never overcome our differences and we don't know each other in the first place. So, so, yeah. Well, and I think that last piece seems really interesting to me as we talk about this topic within the church. Uh, it seems to me that when churches are thinking about or when Christians, pastors, lay people are talking about immigration, a lot of times I think we can get caught up in whatever the public policy debates around immigration are. Um, What's your thought about how building cross-cultural relationships can maybe even set the table for a more productive conversation? 
Yeah, so I think it's 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 imperative, but it's also important that we do them the right way. Um, when I was doing my my work at Fuller um, for my doctorate, I, I sort of was looking into that question of how do we create relationships that that lead to change, lead to reduction of prejudice, lead to reduction of even like these sort of benevolent prejudices that we have that aren't necessarily like they're bad people, but just you know they're not leadership material. <laughs> you know that, that we we kind of refuse benefits or refuse um what's the word i'm looking for refuse uh, like title (laughs) to people because of where they're from um or the language they speak and so what i sort of found out through that research was surprising um in the fact that you know sociologists now note that what they call the contact uh, theory you know that group contact theory that you can have people just contact each other uh, and through that contact reduce prejudice and reduce uh, negative experiences and stereotypes um, that it actually works better for the group that's in charge than it does for the minority group um, because the group that's in charge now has these really good feelings about building friendships with with those people mm-hmm. and the oppressed group or the minority group um, you often see a reduction in their commitment to seek systemic change or to seek a change in their status or their situation uh, because now they have positive relationships with that dominant group that they don't want to harm. And so, so I think, you know, I think I've learned through that, that, you know, contact relationship building is imperative, but that, you know, the, the education about the realities and the inequities has to be a component Mm -hmm. um, or else we're going to end up, you know, doing disservice to what we were hoping to do in the first place. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting way to think about it, that the complication in that for the group who is, quote unquote, in power, um, there really has to be a certain posture or initiative or willingness on our part to, um, to, to engage in something that's not just a feel good, uh, tokenism uh, kind of approach. How can churches begin to do that in their community? I think, I mean, oh, go ahead. I was going to say maybe just even the, the first baby steps of that. Yeah, I think listening, I know that sounds maybe cliche, but listening is, is one of the first steps. Um, you know, I've heard stories, you know, several stories of, you know, the the white church or you know the wealthy church down the street uh going into the the barrio <laughs> to start a ministry that the black or hispanic church had had been working on for years mm-hmm. um and and so the, the white savior complex and all those things that sort of feed into that um and and a lot of that could have been could be avoided if there was a relationship um but that the, those in power, uh, if they were to have taken a learner's point of view, um, you know, that's one thing that when we lived in, in Chile that we actually tried to do a lot of was um, to kind of undo all the, the colonial baggage of you know, being an, a, a US citizen living in Latin America. Um, that we tried really hard to just say that we're here to learn from you. Um, 
And several times we've got pushback to that there. People would say, but we got it all from you in the first place. So you tell us how to do it. And we're like, well, no, but we want to know, like, how are you doing it now? Um, so I think that's a big part of it is, is we need to approach those conversations, you know, to get theological or, you know, as Jesus, you know, the incarnation, you know, Jesus didn't come with the answers per se. He came and experienced life um, as one of us. And so I think that, you know, that, that still has, runs a risk of a condescending attitude of we're going to lower ourselves to, <laughs> to become like them. But, but I think that we have to um, set aside our egos and set aside ourselves and our own initiatives, you know, and realize that maybe there's something that's already existing there that we need to just join and take part in. When I think what you just mentioned there at the end, may be uh, another clue to why this is even on the list of courageous conversations that we're talking about. The, the thought of setting aside ego and being willing to be a learner. Um, I'm not sure that that's at the root of why this is a difficult conversation for churches. I think that's also wrapped up in the political debates of, of our age and, and probably layers of other things. But what, why do you think that the church's approach to the immigrant community and how we ought to embody the gospel or be called into action by the gospel. Why is that even a courageous conversation for the American church uh, or for pastors to have in their congregations? Yeah, I think that, you know, a lot of it comes down to culture. Um, you know, we've, well, I'll take South Carolina as an example. Um, you know, when I first came to South Carolina, seven years ago um i started sort of doing the research of the census and the development of the immigrant specifically the hispanic community because that was the easiest one to kind of track and through u.s census data um and you know we saw this exponential growth over the past now 30 or 40 years you know from york county south carolina having 750 latinos to now having over 15,000. um and and so with that, you know, lots of people spent a long time in their churches assuming that this was what the world looked like, <laughs> you know, or not even in churches, just in society in general, um, that, you know, this is the world. It's, it's predominantly white. Um, and, you know, when we come to conversations of faith and such, that this is how we experience God. And this is normative. And this is the way everybody experiences God. Um, and then, you know, over in less than one generation, <laughs> you've suddenly thrown all of that normalcy into turmoil. And I think people retreat into the normalcy. And, and also, I think they also just assume that, you know, that my culture, my way of doing things is, is the way that things should be done and have always been done. And so we make it normative. Um, and I think that's one reason that these conversations are hard because then, you know, if we talk about sort of the sociological in-group versus out-group stuff, the in-group is no longer, you know, humanity. <laughs> it's no longer, um, you know, even the body of Christ. It's my church or people who look like me or, you know, true Americans, true South Carolinians. And, and that distorts the whole conversation. Um, and I don't know, so I think that's probably one of the reasons that this is such a hard topic 
uh, in addition to the political, you know, in addition to the fact that we have politicians who are pushing um, very anti-immigrant rhetoric, very anti-immigrant, anti-refugee anti rhetoric, which baffles me from a point of Christianity, like, you know, immigration is a policy is one kind of policy, but refugee offering assistance to people who have been displaced by violence or persecution, that to me just completely baffles me. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so I feel like I'm probably rambling now, but I feel like um, that that is the the base is that sort of sociological shift. Um, and actually, if you look at the history of immigration in the United States, um, you know, for a long time, there was no immigration control in the United States. If you got here, you got here, uh, you know, pre-United States up into the early stages of our, of our country, uh, which has its own issues with <laughs> colonialism and, and Native American treatment and, and slavery. But there was, there were no restrictions on immigration. And then, um, we started instituting, you know, health rules. You couldn't be sick. You, you know, had to pass certain tests. But then it was really whenever there's an explosion of difference is when um, we really tried to control immigration. So, you know, one of the first ones was uh, the Chinese and Asian explosion um, that we brought to build railroads, you know. But then we saw the reaction against that due to um the um like through the exclusion acts the chinese exclusion acts that was grown to be that nobody of asian descent can come to the united states and then we see you know towards the middle parts or towards the early parts of the 20th century an explosion in immigration um of catholic immigration from uh southern and eastern europe and and that resulted in the national quota system that was passed in the early 20s, backed by the Ku Klux Klan, that you know basically said a percentage of the people who claim your heritage in the United States, that's who can come. So obviously people from England and people from Western Europe, huge percentages of people who could come to the United States, um, people from Southern Europe um, and Africa, you know, well, not Africa was kind of excluded anyway, um, but Southern Europe had a very low percentage. Asia was still excluded. And interestingly in this time, you know, it was still wide open on the Western hemisphere, Canada, uh, Mexico, South America, just freely could come and go as they pleased. Um, and so that, you know, that was at the end of a huge peak of immigration that then squashed it again. And, you know, we're now back up at the same levels that we were in the early 20th century of, of immigration. And so it's almost like you just see the cycle of whenever there's an influx of something new, you know, first it was Asian, then it was South European, and now it's, um, you know, now it's Latin American. Um, and whenever you see those huge influxes, we see a closing of the system. Mm -hmm. um, and so, it's sad to see that the church is just sort of, you know, playing its role in that whole closing of the system. Yeah. Well, it, se it seems like, and I, I know you've used that term, the cultural captivity of the church, but that as churches and Christians, we maybe are more likely to, to follow those cultural trends and the, the opening up and the drawing back and, um, you know, the pushing back against whatever the wave is that's arriving uh, to the United States at a particular time in history. Um, what would you say to pastors or church leaders in terms of Kind of a, a theological approach that might help us 
to push back against that tendency toward just going with the flow of culture? I think that um, as you and I were talking about earlier, you know, there's no shortage of scripture um, that, that talks about openness to the stranger um, that talks about welcoming the stranger. Um, I mean, you know, I will say that with also the caveat that scripture is a cacophony and that there are some passages that do talk about you know, leaving out the Midianites and stuff like that. Um, but, but I feel like the scriptural, uh, the overarching trend of scripture is to be open and inclusive of other cultures and of foreigners and of strangers in our midst uh, and those in need of help. And so I think, you know, in certain areas, I think that's a good place to start. Um, but honestly, one of my favorite stories in the Bible that I use to talk about the work that we do uh, as the Carolina Immigrant Alliance is the story of Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman. Uh, or Jesus and the Canaanite woman. Um, and the reason is because, you know, historically, you know, we try to rescue Jesus from stories like these, which for those who don't remember, you know, it's the story where Jesus uh, leaves Jerusalem. He's out of his home country. He's not in Jewish territory anymore. Uh, and he encounters this woman who begs for him to, to heal her son. And, um, you know, at first he ignores her, you know, he, he makes that, you know, I, I, I was sent to the, to the house of Israel. I don't give, you know, my children's food to the dogs. Um, and so it's a really troubling story, but then in the end, he ends up saying, you know, he ends up healing the, the child and, and, and Matthew, it's only one of two people who he says has great faith, you know? And so it's, it ends up exemplifying the Canaanite or the Syrophoenician woman. Um, but oftentimes we try to rescue Jesus from that story of just like, oh, he was testing her. He was testing her faith. Um, but, you know, in the text, there's nothing of that. <laughs> you know, what we actually might be seeing is, you know, a Jesus incarnate who is dealing with the prejudices of his people. Um, and that can come through those prejudices to see on the other side of the humanity that exists there. Um and, and I think that's a helpful story for us to realize that perhaps we do have prejudices that are born in us, you know. Uh, I remember at one South Carolina Christian Action Council meeting that we were at, uh, at the end of the meeting, it, you know, someone stood up and said, you know, I am a white supremacist. I'm a recovering white supremacist. And, um, and those who would agree with that, you know, stand up with me. And so, you know, all the white people in the room stood up because, you know, that even though we don't act as a white supremacist or don't act as a racist or don't see ourselves in that light, you know, our culture has born into us those things. And, and so I, I think that it's important to see that. Yeah. And I love the idea of, of thinking that Jesus took on that learner's posture. You know, there was something that he had to learn from the Syrophoenician woman yeah. And um, I, I think that rather than trying to explain that away or rescue Jesus in that situation, maybe, maybe like we do in other places in the gospel, we ought to follow Jesus in, uh, in, in, in learning from people of different cultural backgrounds. Mm -hmm. When we think about conversations in churches around immigration, around advocacy, around refugee resettlement type issues, uh, maybe even around 
public policy and should we or how should we engage with the, the, the systems of government or things like that. Are there some tips or some resources that you would recommend to pastors in engaging those sorts of conversations? Yeah, I think that, you know, in advocacy circles and advocacy conversations in general, you know, one of the key components is to focus on the policies and not the people. <laughs> you know, that it's really easy, um, especially with immigration policy, um, for it to become partisan bickering. Um, when you actually break it down to, sorry, when you actually break it down to, um, to actual positions, oftentimes there's great agreement in the United States. So take for instance, the Dream Act, which would give you know, a pathway to citizenship for the children who are brought here as minors. Um, sometimes upwards of 95% of the US population supports that bill. Um, but since 2002, it still has not been able to pass Congress. Uh, because it becomes a partisan fight. And so I think that, you know, this isn't going to cure all the ills, but I think one thing is to focus on the policies um, and focus on the, the people and the stories. Um, one of my strategies when I go into churches um, is I will share stories of people that our clinic helps. Obviously, I do it, you know, confidentially or, or change narratives so that it's not entirely someone's story. Um, but I'll, I'll, stare, I'll share these stories um, that I know that at the end of the story, everybody's going to say, well, of course, that person deserves whatever benefit you're talking about in immigration law. Um, and I do that. And then I, you know, I, I try to make the point of the fact that you know, this is the majority of cases that we see. Um, and, and so I think personalizing it is helpful. Um, not the saying that we bring in an immigrant family and put them on the... <laughs> <laughs> on the spotlight, but, but giving the personal stories, you know, if there is a personal connection in the church with an individual or family, then that's, I, that's great. But, um, but I think the focus on policy and not people in terms of politicians is important and the focus on the real life consequences of actions. Um, you know, and it is hard because, you know, every policy has a, has a sponsor <laughs> and that sponsor's name is known normally to the public and very quickly policies get branded as Democrat or Republican. Right. Um, and, and I guess only one other thing I would think of is to point out what well, I do is sometimes I point out that historically speaking, you know, people on both sides of the aisle have run on pro-immigrant policies. I mean, Pre 9/11, you know, George W. Bush was or George Bush was very pro-immigrant. He really wanted to do an immigration reform that offered pathway to legal citizenship and all this kind of stuff. Um, after 9/11, one of the biggest negatives, in my opinion, after 9/11 was that immigration got wrapped up with homeland security, and so no longer it was just uh, processing people through a system, but it was you know vetting every single person to make sure that they're not going to do another 9/11 which I understand the fear, but the immigration isn't necessarily a homeland security issue. Um, but so pointing out that, you know, that was, you know, the bill that, that, that George Bush tried to get passed um, was almost a carbon copy of the bill that president Obama got tried to get passed. It failed both times, but that, 
those bills are almost carbon copies. And so to see that both sides of the aisle kind of agree on this, um, when you take away the bickering and the fighting, um, I, I think could tear down some walls maybe. I think that's a hard thing to sort of get around, you know, this yeah. idea that uh, people on both sides of the aisle politically, that there's a, a good bit that they've agreed on and even proposed, uh, and yet we can't get to some sort of resolution on the political level. And, and I think that's probably mirrored somewhat in, in churches and just in the ways that churches try to reach out to or advocate uh, for the immigrant populations in their community, or even to think about refugee resettlement. And I know that churches have been a major part of how we do that in the United States. And obviously, as those uh, pathways for refugees have dried up, that's left churches who have wanted to be a part of that, not able to be, and not sure what to do. Are there resources that you would point people toward uh, in, in terms of either ways to engage with the immigrant populations or ways to advocate or ways to think about or be active in making the experience of refugees being able to, to, to come to the United States uh, in, a, in a positive way? Are there are there resources out there? I know there are different groups that have helped with refugee resettlement. I'm sure that there are groups that do advocacy on the immigration side. So who would you point uh, pastors and church folks to that are interested in learning more? Yeah, so I would say you know, there are several, and it, it depends on who's active in, in your area. Um, when it comes to advocacy, you know, there are some great groups out there like um, for more conservative leaning churches, the Evangelical Immigration Table does really great work. Um, it's made up of a lot of more conservative minded individuals and, and denominations. Um, you know, it was one of the few that, you know, you could rarely see, uh, both Jim Wallace and, um, I've lost his name, uh, the ethics and religious liberty commission. Oh yeah. Russell, Russell Moore. Russell Is that Moore. right? Yeah. Or the one even before him, I can't remember his name either, but yeah. yeah, yeah but they were both signatories to the evangelical immigration table documents. And so, you know, so they have a really broad consensus of support. Um, and so that's, you know, advocacy. They also have good resources for churches like the 40 days of prayer, uh, which is a script, you know, just 40 days of scripture about immigration. Um, and that's one there's interfaith immigrant uh, advocates, which is a probably more progressive, but still, you know, interfaith faith-based um, advocacy group. Um, and then, you know, when it comes to refugee resettlement, you know, that is, the due to the change in administration and due to the opening back up of, of refugee resettlement in the country, um, you know, these organizations are going to need churches to re-engage because it's been, you know, several years of, of desert of drought. Um, and so generally speaking, you know, if you're looking for the faith-based it's, uh, you know, the Catholic charities oftentimes do it, Lutheran services, church world service, um, uh, world relief, and then also it's just a matter of figuring out who's doing it in your area. Hayas is the, you know, the Jewish resettlement group. Um, and so it's really just finding out, you know, who's active And most cities that have active re refugee resettlement also have like secondary organizations that then like for Charlotte, you know, we have Catholic charities and Carolina refugee resettlement who do actual resettlement in the area but then you have refugee support services, which is like once they're done with the government funded programs, 
then they go to these other programs to continue get, getting benefits and helps. And so, um, so I was kind of finding that out. I think there are also some good resources in terms of like books and such to help uh, congregations think about this topic. Um, one is Christians at the Border. Um, I can't remember the author's name right now, <laughs> but um, but it's a it's a really good book that sort of for those churches that are um, a lot more hesitant. And I would tend to say probably a bit more theologically conservative. It sort of builds the case for welcoming immigrants, biblically speaking. Um, and so it's a good one. Um, there are some good resources from World Relief um, around like Bible studies uh, to talk about welcoming immigrants and the such, uh, including sort of uh, where you can have immigration simulations like what we've done at the Alliance a few times. Um, to try to help people understand the complexity of immigration law and why it's so hard for people to come here through the right doors. Um, and, and, and yeah, and there, there are others out there. Those are probably the ones that come to mind first, especially for churches that are just now thinking about entering this world of talking about immigration, <laughs> you know? Sure. Yeah, that's great. And we'll uh, track down some of those and put them in the show notes as well. Okay. So yeah, thank you for, for some of those recommendations. I guess if, from your point of view, as somebody who has been actively involved in the church world, uh, served as a field person uh, in Chile, and um, and then back here to help resource churches, um, and, and now with Carolina Immigrant Alliance, from the perspective that you have, as you look at churches, what would be your hope? You know, what would you hope that churches would, uh, would, would be doing, uh, how churches might find a, a, a different posture around these conversations? You know, from where you are, what, what would be your hope for what the church might do, uh, for what Christians might do to be uh, a, a voice in this conversation? Yeah, I think that... The first thing that comes to mind is a hope that the church could recover some humility in these conversations um, and recovers an ability to, um, to listen to the life struggles of individuals who are deeply affected by, um, by policy <laughs> and by politics um, and, and to allow themselves to be moved by that. And I think that's, that's always got to be the first step. Um, is that until we can hear the voices, you know, for Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman story, uh, for him to eventually hear her voice saying, you know, well, even the dog is eat the crumbs. Can you at least give me the crumbs? And for that to maybe spark a compassionate change, like where he says, you know, you are of great faith, which like I said before, only two people get that in Matthew get said they have great faith and neither are Jewish. Um, and so I think that for us then to maybe expose ourselves to those stories, expose ourselves to those um, really horrifying stories. I mean, if I can be honest about some of the stories that I hear of the reason that people come to our country, uh, the reason that they, I mean, they don't come here. They, they come here knowing that this is at times a very hostile place for them, but they come anyway. And I think if we could, step back, listen, and allow ourselves to be changed 
uh, to where we can finally say like, you know, wow, they are of great faith, <laughs> much more faith than I ever had to begin with. Uh, it takes great faith to pack up your family and to cross the Sonoran Desert uh, in the hopes that you might be able to, 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 to provide for them better or to escape violence. It takes a lot of faith to do that. And, and so I think that's sort of the first, my first hope is that the church could maybe be quiet for a while <laughs> and actually listen. Um, and then through that, you know, I think my hope is that the church could then elevate those voices. Um, in certain parts of our country, the church still holds a significant place of power, um, especially in the South. You know, the church can hold at times a very significant place of power. And if the church could start elevating those voices, uh, then I think that great change could take place. That's a great place to, to sort of wrap up this part of the conversation. Thank you, Blake. I really appreciate you being a part of the podcast and uh, really sharing your insight, your experience. Uh, where can listeners find Carolina Immigrant Alliance? Where can they find you online or how can they uh, learn more about what you're up to? Yeah, so they can find us online at carolinaimmigrantalliance.org. Um, we're also on Facebook and Twitter at Twitter at SEMA, uh, C-I-M-A, Rock Hill is sort of our, our username there. And so, yeah, I'd encourage them just to find us, you know, reach out to us if there's anything that they would like to take part in. Um, so, yeah. Sounds great. Thanks so much, Blake. Thanks for being a part of this. Well, thank you. Well, that's a wrap for this episode of Pastor Life Podcast from Pinnacle Leadership Associates. And thanks to Blake Hart for being a part of the pod today, for sharing his wisdom and experience, putting a few tools in our toolbox today. Yeah, where can we learn more about Blake's work? Yeah, so you can find Blake at carolinaimmigrantalliance.org. And I'm pretty sure that the Alliance is also on social media. So just search for Carolina Immigrant Alliance. And you can learn more about Pastor Life and Pinnacle Leadership Associates at pinlead.com. That's P-I-N-N-L-E-A-D.com. You want to hear something funny? Sure. So this may be true for you too, but sometimes when I try to type in P-I-N-N-L-E-A-D into my computer, it autocorrects to pinhead. <laughs> well, uh, that, that seems appropriate, maybe. 